Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the weekly podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today's show features Jackie B., a woman whose story illustrates one of the most cunning aspects of alcoholism, the erroneous belief that just going to AA meetings without necessarily doing the work is enough to stay sober. In Jackie's case, she had survived her dysfunctional family and alcohol-infused failures at higher education only to emerge as a full-blown binge drinker. As escalating alcoholism continued to addle her decisions, she escaped her first toxic marriage with two young children, only to find herself drinking more than ever. Her second marriage produced three children and one stillborn baby. The early-onset deterioration of that marriage caused by alcoholism persisted for 17 years until Jackie had finally had enough. She found AA and somehow stayed sober for eight years, even though her ever-diminishing involvement in the program continually pulled her farther away from it. Her mistaken belief that she could find and maintain AA-type sobriety in church ultimately resulted in her getting drunk. It took her until 2015 to get back into AA. Beaten by the disease into a state of reasonableness, Jackie finally embraced the program and its principles wholeheartedly, remaining sober to this day. Jackie's story will not be unfamiliar to AAs who thought they could find an easier, softer way to work the program, only to slip in the end. I'm grateful she made it back to AA and has continued to do all the simple, but not easy, things necessary to assure daily sobriety and a happy life in the center of the program. I think you'll find her story to be most engaging and offer you 60 minutes of listening pleasure on today's AA Recovery Interviews podcast with my friend and AA sister, Jackie B. I'm Jackie. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm so glad that you could be with me today. Thank you, Howard. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and you're joining me from a little town outside of Houston. Yes. And as a matter of fact, I I know that little town well. And a good friend of mine uh, recently moved out there. He used to live in Houston for a long time. He was been sober quite a while, like 25 years. In fact, I actually interviewed him a while back. Do you happen to know my friend? I think we might have crossed paths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's Lee. Uh-huh. Yes. Where did you guys meet? We actually, and you know, talk about um, serendipity and trust. There is a wonderful, remarkable woman, Sally G., and oh, yeah. our um, group of ladies, it was her birthday month, uh, for sobriety and mm-hmm. she was going back to celebrate. And so we drove in and surprised her. And there was a gentleman also celebrating his AA birthday. And so our stories are a little different how we met. However, uh-huh. <laughs> that was the first night we got to, to see each other and introduce ourselves. I oh, think he so winked cool. at me, Howard, but he says I nodded at him. So <laughs> He's a really charming guy, and he and I have gotten to be good friends over the years. So did you grow up uh, in that small town? I did not. I actually grew up, um, I was born at Methodist Hospital in Houston. Um, I lived and grew up in the greater Houston area. And yeah. um, I moved to a little town around 2000. So first of all, before we go any further, how long have you been sober? What's your sobriety date? My sobriety date is October 25th of 2015. So you've been sober six years. I yeah, six years. Um, and I have I have now what is referred to as a been around date. So I'm uh, was familiar with recovery and AA for quite a while. Before you came in, mm, I was in, and I went and did some recon for everyone. Oh, okay. Yeah, you were one of those. Yep. People call them scouts, don't they? The people who go out and they come back with arrows in their butts, and then yes. we know. Things haven't gotten any better out there, so yes. better, you better not go there. That's where your experience really serves other people. Yes. What was it? Uh, what was it like growing up in your family of origin in your home? You know, growing up um, at the time, I didn't know mm-hmm. any different. 
right? And so mm-hmm. um, I had two parents that loved um, as best they could. Um, I have mm-hmm. a younger brother. Looking back, I can tell you, I think it was chaotic. I didn't know it mm. was chaotic at the time. In what ways? Um, I think there was always a um, level of uncertainty, even though uh, I grew up in, my father's an alcoholic, was an alcoholic. And mm-hmm. um, both of my mother's parents were alcoholics. Hmm. And so I think uh, uh, the unfortunate piece of untreated disease was mm-hmm. part of our family culture. But some of the gifts were uh, my mom, one of the phrases growing up, she was always learn how to float on your own bottom um, assume mm. responsibility. And, and so there were these threads I see now that were gifts. Um, I also see they did the absolute best they could. They were both remarkable, but it was yeah. it was dysfunctional. Yeah, I get that. And that's the case, I think, in many people's backstory is a dysfunctional home with one or both parents. Uh, it always amazes me when somebody had a great, wonderful, happy, happy childhood who comes into AA. I think, how does that happen? But how did your father's alcoholism express itself in your life? There was a lot of anger. Uh-huh. Uh, my dad was a rager. And oh, yeah. um, it's funny, I, and I don't, I don't think I, it occurred to me until I was an adult, he would whistle. And that was almost, it was a clue that he was fixing to lose it. And okay. so even now, I, it's almost a place where it's a good self-check because if I'm not in a good space and somebody mm-hmm. whistles, I can, I can just feel that I think something is like fixing to go really awry. And it has nothing to do with anything other than it's just something I drug along. One of those uh, uh, subliminal stimulants, huh? Yeah. Wow. So when he whistled, what's what was next? Rage. Absolute rage. rage. Absolute rage. Gritting of his teeth. and. So you had a, w- a warning sign for the rage, huh? Sometimes, yeah. Oh, that would have been nice to have when I was a kid. <laughs> <Kind of> a... <laughs> rage, al- rage always seemed to sneak up from behind me. And, you yeah. know, you turn around and, ah, it's right there. But you <laughs> yeah, had that as a warning, huh? I had a yellow light. I have never thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah. It was a, kind of a, a marker for you. So... How was your mother dealing with your dad's rage uh, and protecting you, you and your brother? So I am, you know, part of my mom, I think she, uh, my dad was very successful. He was a high functioning alcoholic. He's incredibly intelligent, which is a mm-hmm. writer story sometimes. And my mom had uh, met him, quit college and she went back and this is so remarkable for her. She went back and got an associate's degree and a bachelor's and a master's and a doctorate. And I think what is important is I think that was how she dealt with everything. She stayed really Mm -hmm. busy and she knew she had to make a living. But I also think it let her escape and everybody kind of sequestered. My parents separated, I think, the first time when I was a freshman. And then they divorced Mm -hmm. when I was a senior. So you grew up until you were, what, uh, 17, Mm -hmm. 18 years old with with both your parents around, but in a difficult place to live. Yes. Mm-hmm. So when did you first try alcohol? What was your first exposure to alcohol and or drugs? So, yeah, my first exposure to alcohol, and it, it's funny because I can remember it so vividly and clearly, but I didn't know it was not normal. It was I was mm-hmm. 13. I was going to a junior high dance. I can tell you the outfit I wore. It was like those little cropped balloon pants or something. And, um, we stole my, uh, whiskey from my dad's, poured it in a Mason jar, a -hmm. large Mason jar, stole the whiskey, went upstairs into the bathroom, hid Mm -hmm. in the bathroom closet. And I proceeded to drink a large amount of whiskey, went to the junior Mm -hmm. high dance. I blacked out and I puked. And that was my first experience. 13 seems to be the age. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed where 13 or 14 is the age of that first drink. So you got sick your first time and you blacked out your first time. Mm-hmm. Was that a recurring theme in your life while you were a drinker? Yes. Early on, yes. And um, a binge. I was a binge drinker. I was not an everyday mm-hmm. drinker in high school, um, but I was a binge drinker. And um, yeah. certainly that became true in college. Um, and I didn't know... I, I was in college, Howard. It's fascinating now, but I remember my girlfriend and we're still friends and she looked at me and we were talking, recanting something. Mm-hmm. And I thought everybody blacked out. 
I did oh, not know. And I, I, she, she just said, that's not normal. I was shocked. So nothing seemed wrong to you about drinking from that mason jar, Mm-mm. getting sick, throwing up, and then not being able to remember everything. That was what drinking was about in your mind at that point. It was. And the other part was um, because there was a lot of denial in the family setting and a lot of disconnect. My mom was actually taking care of her sick mother. My dad came and got me. Mm-hmm. We, we never talked about it. I was never punished. And, hmm. um, and that was kind of the, the way things went. Did you know when you were taking that first drink, did you have any sense either while you were doing it or the next day that this was something that either was wrong or might turn into a problem or were you impatient to try it again? What, what was the feeling that went through your mind in those few days? I remember um, doing it and it was, I felt so awkward. Um, mm. So I remember doing it and feeling like, and you know, it's when you sit in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and you hear that phrase of, mm-hmm. I, I finally felt comfortable in my own skin. I felt like I was okay. And mm-hmm. even though I was this great kid and I was smart and doing all these things, I did not know that. I didn't feel that. Mm. And there was that confidence that came to go dance until I puked, I guess. But it was, <laughs> you know. Um, there you go. And, um, but I think without knowingly, I, I think mm-hmm. it became a way that I felt like I could feel okay. Yeah, yeah. That too is a recurrent theme. I know it was for me and... So many people talk about finally feeling comfortable in their own skin. Mm-hmm. So you, this followed you into high school. Did you hang with a certain crowd who liked to do that, or was it just so ubiquitous that uh, everybody was doing it? No, it's real interesting. I look back. Um, I was uh, a popular kid, and I mm-hmm. was a class president. I was a cheerleader. But I didn't hang with a lot of people. I isolated. Mm. And I think it's the home was so chaotic or uncomfortable Mm -hmm. that, um, and, you know, who knows, looking back, maybe it was that if I ever did drink, they all knew, don't let Jackie ride in your car. I don't know, because I never, I drank everything I had and everything you had. Uh Uh-huh. Where did you get what you were drinking was that from your dad's stash or where where did you pick up pick up all your, your well alcohol? so i i had um, a friend that worked at the pool, city pool and so there was a id maker in there uh-huh. i think until i was 14 I, we stole or got people to buy us whatever and mm-hmm. um, then i learned how to make fake ids and so we would hop the fence at the city pool and break in <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and we would, a little I was the, yeah, so I was the one that would get in there and um, make your fake ID. And, you know, I would not make it for people that I was jealous of. I acted like I yeah. didn't know what they were talking about. And, uh, but that's how we did it. So we kind of bought wow. our own after a while, you know, I think by the junior year, we were able to buy our own. So you were able to buy your own liquor. Was it hard or were you mm-hmm. drinking beer? What was the, the drink of choice in those days? Again, it was really whatever I could get my hands on, um, uh-huh. beer, wine coolers. And early on, I would drink a lot before we got somewhere so I could act cool like I was only having a beer, only having yeah. a wine cooler. Um, a lot of vodka, a lot of Bacardi. So you're drinking in high school. You've got all these fake IDs going on so you can pretty much do what you want. When did when did you first experience any consequences to your drinking? Uh, let's say a time you either got in trouble for it or a time somebody of authority found out and said something to you about it. When, when did that occur for you? It's interesting because I don't know, looking back, I can tell you consequences Uh that were subtle. I look back, there were times that, um, maybe I got stopped for a speeding ticket and it was nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Um, my dad certainly knew and, um, but I don't think he, I think if he acknowledged my heavy alcohol use, then he would have to address his own. So did he just ignore it? Yeah, absolutely. We always said, looking again, you look back and you're like, oh, it was different. He worked hard, right? And so he'd come home and go to sleep because he worked so hard. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, he was passing out and I just didn't, I just didn't know. And your mom at that time? She was working hard. She was always, um, she finished her doctorate my senior year. 
And so she was, you know, trying to make sure that she could, um, I guess, keep what she's taught us float on her own bottom. So she was pretty busy. So was that in preparation for that impending divorce that happened when you were a senior? I think so. And I think um, I think she was hoping that she could get my brother and I out of the house before she did it without knowing that yeah. it was just a disaster the whole way through. I see. So you were able to get through without the consequences that a lot of people have to face. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get a DUI or have any run-ins with the cops at all? No. You were one of the lucky ones, right? <laughs> I am. And, you know, I look back, we were, I drove a Jeep, and uh, uh-huh. but we partied out in the oil fields. And back right. in, in that time, it was just kind of out. So what did the next several years look like? Did you, did you go on to university or uh, what did you do after high school? I remember I didn't go on any college tours and I applied to, uh, at the time it was Southwest Texas State. Um, uh-huh. And it's where I'd gone for cheerleading camp. So I applied and I was accepted huh. and that's where I went. That's a party school too, isn't it? It yes, it was. Yes, okay. it was. <laughs> it was. Yeah, that was the be- beginning of a a really wicked time because I didn't have any accountability, and so I basically flunked out. Mm-hmm. I I um, didn't even tell my parents because that was back in the day where you didn't have internet or you know there was nothing. They were divorced, yeah. so they didn't know where mail was going. Uh-huh. I think I had I was already a semester um, after I had been kicked out that my mom figured it out and and came up and got me my sophomore sophomore year. What were the circumstances under which you got kicked out? Well, it, I, I'm not going to school. Just not going. I mean, my GPA was I can't even recall what it was in. Uh, so this and this is the insanity. Um, they weren't going to let me re-register. I was on, already on academic probation, and so I went to register, and they said no. I said, but you, mm-hmm. I've paid my tuition. I pay my tuition. So why <laughs> won't you let me come? I just was, I couldn't believe it. Could not believe it. Well, those state schools have a pretty high tolerance for bad behavior. You, you have to work pretty hard at it to get kicked out. So I'm assuming things had gone pretty badly for you. Yes. They did not care to have me as one of their graduates. So how long were you there? How many semesters? I was there two years. What did you do after that? After that, so I moved home and I moved in with my mom and she had remarried at that point. Mm -hmm. And um, she was pretty wise. She said, you can live here as long as you're in school. Mm -hmm. After you go to school and have a successful semester, then I'll help you pay for books. The tuition's on you. that's cool. And so, um, yeah, so I went back and I went back to school and managed to balance you know, school and uh, waited tables and, bar- you know, did everything I could, was resourceful, mm-hmm. but made it through school. Huh. And what did your drinking look like at that time? And and I haven't heard you mention uh, any kind of drugs yet. I wondered if that entered into the equation at some point. No, I never liked drugs. Interestingly enough, I'm a super brave person on one end and like a super scaredy cat on the other. Mm -hmm. And I had had a pediatrician one time tell me I had a funny little heartbeat. He said, if you Uh ever do, if you ever do cocaine or drugs, it will kill you. And um, (laughs) I said, okay. Okay. (laughs) And uh, I smoked pot a couple of times and I hated how slow it made me feel. That was not my rhythm. And so I didn't, I, I really drugs just has... Wasn't my thing. Well, good thing, because sometimes people really have bad experiences. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for a pediatrician to scare you out of uh, (laughs) drugs at such a young age, I think every pediatrician should be able to do that. Right. Uh, So so you continued drinking. Uh, Were you a solitary drinker or were you going out with friends all the time? No, it was a lot with friends, but, you know, um, it was solitary on the front end or the back end. And so I didn't want anybody to know how much I was drinking. So, you know, mm-hmm. if we got ready. I would drink a lot of straight alcohol in a glass. And then if we got back, I would, if I wasn't blacked out or passed out, I would drink until. I used to like to drink like that, too. I used to, before going out to any club or whatever, or going out with my friends, I'd always drink a bunch of liquor to kind of get ahead of the game, so to speak. So wherever we landed, mm-hmm. I was already, uh, you know, pretty far along. Um, and then like you, after I would get home, I didn't black out a whole lot. So I knew that after I got home, I'd probably keep on drinking until I just went to bed or whatever. But 
or passed mm-hmm. out. So uh, you were you were that was a big part of your social life then, huh? Yes. Yes. Hmm. I don't I don't know that I really did much at all where I wasn't hmm. alcohol wasn't involved. I didn't it felt uncomfortable. It just felt too uncomfortable. Yeah. To not do it or mm-hmm. to just to be around without being drunk? I think just to be just to breathe on my own without any substance in my body just felt uncomfortable. Um And so I could do it if I was in the context of school or different types of work um, or family. But in Mm -hmm. those, you know, and it's one of those things you look back and I didn't realize it at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. But it just felt awful. It felt awful after? Uh, In the middle, if I didn't have alcohol in me, if I didn't have that numb, the buffer kind of a... It almost felt like, have you seen those, uh, you, you sit in them and they're these big plastic bubbles and you roll around and that's almost what it felt like. Like I needed to be, have the alcohol all the way around and it felt like Mm -hmm. I could roll around and bounce off everything. Feel comfortable and safe. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a heck of a lifestyle to be leading, uh, needing to have that just to be able to function. But it sounds to me like you you were a a relatively high-functioning alcoholic. Is that a safe assumption? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was was really a binge drinker. And so it was Uh that when I I don't recall Howard ever having a drink. And um, but there would be times if I didn't, if I needed to get through something, I wouldn't drink. Yeah. So what did the next number of years look like for you after... uh, after school and after you were living at your mom's house, what was the trajectory from that point up to, let's say, when you first noticed alcohol was becoming a real problem in your life? So I moved back home, went to school, and there was a guy I had gone, we'd grown up together, confirmed together in in church and all those things. Mm -hmm. And we kind of looked around and was like, well, he was getting married. We never dated in high school, but we'd all, we'd literally grown up together. So we started going out and we should get married. So we got married. We had two kids. Um, He drank like I drank. We, gosh, we got married. We had two kids pretty quick. Which was interesting because um, for some reasons, I did not, I thought it would be hard to have kids. Now, here's a woman who's had six. So I didn't, <laughs> so I really thought, well, this is cool. We'll get married and we'll party and do whatever. And um, and then I had, I got pregnant really quick and had two children and then we got divorced pretty, pretty, hmm. I think we were married right at less, a little less than five years or right at five years. So were you left with the two little ones? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, you know, and I looked around and that was scary because I felt pretty worthless and, um, and, and I'm working, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm employable, but that is not what I knew is my truth. And so I looked around and I looked for somebody who was, um, as sick as I was, I guess would be the fairest Mm -hmm. thing to say. And if I don't, I don't want to fix me, but I will fix you. And this is, you know, the ability to look backwards and see kind of looking at why did I do what I did and stepped into a horrific, um, real horrific situation. Mm. And now the horrific situation you're referring to is the, is the first marriage? The second. Mm-hmm. The second mm-hmm. one. Yeah. So between the first and the second marriage, when you had the, the babies, how, far, how much time is there between them? So the, um, there's two years between them. What did your drinking look like while you were pregnant? Uh, did you stop? Did you, because it sounds to me like by that time you were a pretty regular binge drinker. What did you do while you were pregnant and shortly after they were born? Um, so I work in the medical field. And uh-huh. so I would, I would drink up until I knew that it would affect the fetus. Huh. And then I would not drink. And be the, um, for lack of a better term, so forgive my profanity, but I would just be batshit crazy until mm-hmm. I could drink again. Um, irritable, restless, and discontent. Now I know what it is. I did not know at the time. I thought it was hormones. Wow. That's a, that's a heck of a mom to have in your life when you're just a little baby. Mm-hmm. A mom who's irritable, discontent, yes. unhappy. Yes. After the second child was born, did you... Did you pick up again immediately or what, what did that look like? 
Yeah. So I would nurse for about six weeks. And even Mm in, even in that window of time, I would still, I would binge drink in there and I would, if you pump breast milk, right. And so I would know what to do. And so I could drink and, and try to um, at least do the best I could in those, that circumstance. Does alcohol not affect the nursing process? Is there a certain amount of time that it's in your system till it's not, and then you can nurse safely? Yeah. And I don't even remember, but at this time I was working in an emergency room. And so I asked the lactation consultant how, uh-huh. I, 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 you know, and you always do, I have somebody and they're wondering, I don't even recall Howard, but I knew there was like, I don't remember if it was 12 hours or 24 hours that the alcohol wouldn't pass, you know, that you had to kind of give your body a break and get it out of your system. The insanity, the absolute insanity. That takes a lot of planning, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have you a little timer on so you know whether it's, oh. it's safe to feed the baby. So you mentioned that you went from that situation, and you raised those two little ones pretty much by yourself until this next, what you referred to as horrific uh-huh. relationship came along. What was that period like for you? The period between the two? Yeah, but between the two. It was very short. I mean, it was just mm. short. And um, and I think I was looking around because mm-hmm. I was stuck with myself. And that, it just didn't feel good. Hmm. What kind of mom did you feel like you were to the little ones? I mean, at the time, how do you recall feeling about being a mother having to raise two little babies? So I love them more than anything. Hmm. You know, I tried to do all the things I knew to do. And I tried to be the best mom I thought I could be. I can't imagine because I wasn't fully there and I wasn't fully present. Hmm. Yeah, that's tough. I think that's still, and it's it's one of those things we can turn it into our greatest asset. I think that's mm-hmm. still one of the most painful pieces is that um, I drug these kids along on this mm-hmm. journey. And um, that that's a really wicked thing to have to sit with sometimes. Mm-hmm. But the ability to um, be the kind of mom I always wanted to be and to be that kind of mom today, that is where the gift lies. And then, you know, and, and it never fails in that moment where I feel the most discouraged or I have regret. There's a woman and I can say, you know what, you're going to be okay. And you'll get on the other side. And there's that, for me, that piece that God comes in and he says, mm. wait, 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 that's your disease. So let's look at where you are today and let's look at what you did with everything. And so that's that part about sharing your experience, strength and hope where I see, okay, this is okay. And just keep breathing. Yeah, and I'll bet in the six years that you've been sober, there's probably been countless women that you have spoken with using your own experience that have really benefited from what you've had to say about that particular thing. I don't know if I've helped anybody as much as I hear God whisper in my ear, you're a good mom. Yeah. Keep your feet moving. Was your mom around at that time when you were raising the babies? She was. Um, I don't think so. I have a my younger brother. He's um, also uh, struggles with addiction issues. And uh-huh. so his were always so much worse than mine. And I uh-huh. was pretty functional. as a lot like my dad. And yeah. so I think um, I just flew under everybody's radar. It just, you know, it just wasn't really what anybody talked about. I'm interested in the time between when you got married the second time. Your oldest one was four or five years old. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then from that point until the, the point at which you got sober, how many years is that interval? So between the time I got um, married Mm -hmm. and there were um, four children, one child in there was a stillbirth. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that is a point where my alcoholism totally went off the rails. Hmm. Um, But I got sober the first time when my youngest was six months old. And I mm. stayed sober for eight years. So the youngest, meaning the, the, the child that you had with your first husband... The youngest, so there was, um, no, the youngest being the baby of the family. Oh, the baby of the family. Mm-hmm. Okay. So eight years you stayed sober. Did you do that with AA? or? I did. I did. You did. What did that period of time look like? It's interesting. I had called my brother before I went into AA, and he had uh-huh. been in and out of the program. And I called him, and I said, I think I have a problem. 
And, you know, he laughed and he'd been to jail and he'd wrecked cars and, mm. and um, well, I'd wrecked cars, but I hadn't, you know, he you hadn't been arrested for drinking. Um, well, actually, that's not true either, but I hadn't had quite the consequences. <laughs> <he's> <laughs> but I remember calling him Howard. And I, and again, it's one of those very clear moments. And I said, I think I have a problem. And, um, he said, you don't have a problem. You, you know, you, you have kids, you have a business, you have money in the bank. You are not an alcoholic. It's just a stressful time. And I remember hanging up the phone and there was like that one side of my body was so relieved because I wasn't like him. I wasn't an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of my body was so devastated because I knew I needed help because um, there was a tree on this road in and out of, um, if I didn't have my, I, I can tell you the tree and it's that um, place we get to that incomprehensible demoralization. Everything was so mm-hmm. bad. If I could have run my car into that tree, I would have been okay with it. But, um, but I had kids. Yeah. I, at that time, had a historic bed and breakfast, and there was a gentleman mm-hmm. I knew who was in the program, and mm-hmm. I woke up this one particular morning, um, and I would wake up, and I would go look to see if my car was outside, and it was, and I would go run, and all five of the kids would be hunkered down in one room, because at this time, there was a 12-year-old, the 10-year-old, and then three littles the older kids would have taken care of the younger ones Mm -hmm. and I would go make sure everybody was in there. And that morning I called him and, um, he called, he said, I'll be there. He called a woman. He came to my house with a woman. Mm -hmm. They told me they did it just like the book talks about it, you know? Uh And, uh, they said, can you make it to noon? Can you go to this? And they gave me the address of the church and they called, they called women. And those mm-hmm. women came to the meeting and, uh, one of the wow. women's still my sponsor today. So. Wow. That's amazing. So that was the beginning of an eight year period yes. of sobriety. What year was that when you, uh, when De- you went the first time? Yeah. So it was December 16th of 2004. What was your involvement like when you came into AA? Were you, did you feel relieved to be there? Were you resistant? Uh, were you identifying or kind of holding yourself separate from people? What was that like for you? I dove in the best I knew and I went to meetings every day at noon. I would drop my kids at school. I would go into town. Um, mm-hmm. I would put up, um, people would help me bring a pack and play in from my car when the littlest one, she was six months old and, uh-huh. um, I'd pop a pack and play up and she grew up in the rooms sitting around the table. Hmm. I knew enough to know that if I, at the time, um, if I wasn't willing to do the things I was doing, my life was going to go off the rails hmm. and, um, it felt good. And, and so I got, I started getting all those things, uh, mm-hmm. Life got better. You know, life slowly got better. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. You got remarried. How long did that marriage last and did it overlap into your entree into AA? That marriage lasted, ah, the length of the marriage was 17 or 18 years. It was seven counselors, lots of separations. And what I learned about myself and what I've mm-hmm. learned about recovery is that I have to be willing every day I wake up to do, mm. be willing to do more today about my own program and what God's trying to show me than I did the day before. And it got uncomfortable and I became less willing to do that every day. And which is really, um, I stayed in the middle of the rooms the first time for about six years. And really, I think what happened was I had to become willing to um, stand up for a kind of life that I deserved and mm-hmm. to stand up for a sober life 
But because I married somebody as sick as I was, yeah, it the, the you know it just the scales get off and um, it got painful, and I became I, it it was that crossroads or that place, and I became unwilling to do the things I needed to do to stay sober. It got painful. It got too painful. So this is happening at six years into the program during that first eight-year stint. Yeah, and it really happened early on, but I think because uh-huh. we lived very parallel lives, um, we were not always together, um, very different. There were some different lifestyle choices, partner choices, mm-hmm. and so it was a parallel life. You know, I think it's fair to say um, I needed the comfort of knowing my bills were paid and those things were done. And mm-hmm. he needed the comfort of making it look like it was a normal, sane home. Right. Hmm. And so I think um, he kind of started getting resentful to AA. He didn't like AA because I started to change. Hmm. Was he openly oppositional towards it? Did he try and keep you from going to meetings or make it difficult for you to engage in your program? Yes. Yeah. Yes. In what ways? Um, oh, you're going to miss the kids this if you go, I thought you were trying to be a good mother. Um, and, and, uh, unfortunately there was a lot of, I guess, mental, um, confusion for me and that balance of, and the truth, the real truth that I had to learn the hard way, anything I put before AA, I will lose. Um, mm-hmm. for me, for me, that turned out to be very true. So I went less and life got better. And then I got very active in a church. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the church belief was that if I prayed right and if I asked for certain things to be removed, uh, my alcoholism would be removed. Was that just what you were hearing or is that actually what they were saying? Actually, that's a belief they hold. Really? Mm-hmm. It's a local mm. church and they still pretty well hold true to that. I had to sit still and make sure am I rationalizing and justifying this? Um, mm-hmm. Because what I can tell you is I knew about alcoholism. I knew what it was. And, and what I can mm-hmm. tell you looking back is I very well knew when I relapsed, it was because it got too painful. Um, and so I, looking back, I can tell you, I knew exactly what I was doing. Um, yeah, I think so. No, I know so. I know so. Well, you know, certainly the difference between AA and a religious program often is that the, the religious program will, will deem it more of a moral failing than actually a disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, did they acknowledge the fact when you were uh, active in that church that you had the disease of alcoholism or was it let's fix her moral compass to, you know, to make her better? It would, they were going to fix me and uh, it was believed it was spiritual warfare. Yeah. And it's kind of the, the interesting piece looking back. Um, and I relapsed before this church realized it. And um, I was head of women's ministry and did mission work. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, I was slowly exited out of all those roles because I became such an obnoxious human and um, was just a, a nightmare. But my last Bible study I did was um, Fallen Women of the Bible. And, and what I realized today is I was looking for what I, what I know to be my truth today is Uh I was looking for a way that God would love me, but I could still drink because it felt too uncomfortable. So you were in pretty good company there, weren't you? The fallen women of the Bible. (laughs) Oh man, I was... So what did they try with you to keep you from falling and uh, and from being one of those women for all eternity? You know, I was pretty well ostracized very quickly. Um, really? Because, yeah. Yes. Yes. I think I relapsed. I was out for about a year before I tried to come back in. Um, uh-huh. And the other part I learned to be very true when I relapsed, Howard. Unfortunately, I turned into an everyday 24-7 drinker. And the, the time frame that that evolution occurred... Uh baffles me. It absolutely baffles me. So you started, you were drinking the whole time you were going to this church after you had quit AA the first time? So I was going to the church and really what happened was um, I was starting to uh, attempting again to leave the marriage. 
And I had attempted multiple times mm-hmm. and, you know, got a lot of pushback and there was a lot of um, abuse with, there was a lot of abuse within the marriage. I try to keep it very private because of my children, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but there was a horrible amount of abuse. And so I was trying to gather everything I could to leave and I, it did, I didn't. And I, so I drank. Mm-hmm. And so I was already active in the church. And I think that what I know for my truth, again, it goes back to if, if I'm in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I get to be active in my church today. Mm-hmm. Like my daughter and I were at church this morning. So I get to be active. Mm-hmm. But if I'm not active first in AA, I don't get to be a mom. I don't get to be a partner. I don't get to work. I don't get to go and be active within these other areas. So their church and AA are not mutually exclusive. And I think most people find that once they get themselves right spiritually in AA, going back into a religious culture, whether it be a church or anything else, is more fulfilling, easier to do, and doesn't feel like you're treading on such thin ice, especially when the the religious side was the one that was telling you, you don't need AA, you just need to get saved, or you just need, you know, these various and sundry uh, rituals. So after you slipped, you said it was a couple years before you actually came back into AA from the time at which you slipped? Yes. And I, I never say I slipped. I full-blown was a train wreck. So I always, I never say I slipped. There was nothing like, I mean, um, <laughs> Yeah, I have a friend who used to say, you know, you didn't slip on a banana peel, man. You yes. got I drunk. mean, Katie bar the door. <laughs> and um, so there was a little over a two-year window. And for a year, I stayed absolutely out drinking nonstop. And interestingly enough, that was also the same time the oldest two had gone off, uh, were out of the house and in college and in that Um, So these younger children did not ever recall me drinking. And so, yeah, so looking back, I lost the trust of these older two who were 10 and 12 when I got sober. Right. And now these younger three saw mom drunk that they didn't remember drinking. So you're still in the small community that we're talking about here, right? At that point, we had moved. So still a small town, right? Yeah, yeah, still right. Part of that story was I did, um, before I got sober the first time, the town drunk, she was a lady. And I remember being so twisted off at her. She called me and she said, hey, a couple of us were talking and we were going to suggest that maybe you shouldn't drink till after five. It seems to be a problem for you. (laughs) (laughs) This is the town drunk telling you that. she thinks she is town drunk (laughs) calling me passing judgment (laughs) wow that's rich oh man so here you are in the in these small communities when you went out after that period of sobriety did you ever run into the people from aa did you have an opportunity to engage with any of them during that time and and if so what were they saying to you and what were you saying to them I did. And here's the really cool thing about some of these women. There's a annual ornament exchange we have up here with AA and uh-huh. Al-Anon and, um, every year. And even when I, um, because there was two years before I went out that I wasn't active in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'd go pick up my mm-hmm. birthday chip and, um, but they would always extend me the invitation to this ornament exchange. Even when I relapsed and they knew I had relapsed, it was when I went out, it was, I was out and, um, there was an event or two, two different ones would see me at, and, uh, they were always gracious. They always were kind to me. I will say my other experiences, that's not always true. There was one gal at the time, she blamed me for her cancer. She said I was so mean when I went out that um, I gave her cancer. So, you know, um, but what a gift because I can I can choose to be kind and gracious and remember it's a disease. And uh, some of these women uh, were so loving, Howard. And when I relapsed, you know, not only yeah. does the disease, it's like it, you read in the big book, it, it waits for you yeah. like you never miss today. But so does all the inside stuff, what I realized too. It's not just the drink, but what I realized is all that yeah. guilt and shame and humiliation, the four horsemen, all that stuff, 
it comes back full mm-hmm. force. And they were so kind and loving. Isn't that wonderful? And it, it is an exception whenever you see somebody holding it against uh, an individual who's slipped. Uh, most people are pretty understanding because they're, mm-hmm. but for the grace of God, go I. And your experience, like you said, being a scout, there was this eight-year period. And how long between then and when you came back in 2015? What what was that interval like for you? Or does, does it butt right up to it? It does. I mean, I went out and it was like Katie okay. barred the door. And then this is the other interesting part. So I tried to get sober after I'd relapsed for about a year. And I just couldn't couldn't keep it together. And it was because I knew the changes I had to make. So I'm still, I'm drinking every day. Um, I am going, so I started going back to counseling. Um, I got an attorney mm-hmm. and I got all these things all lined up over this crazy window of time. Mm-hmm. Almost feel like God knew I was having this willingness. And so he was letting me kind of start this ball rolling. And um, I look back mm-hmm. at these the provisions that got put into place. And then um, a lot of things happened before I got sober. And it was almost like, okay, now I can get sober. So it wasn't like a bad thing drove you in. It's like acknowledgement of the good things that were happening was the impetus to come back to AA? I think it was the knowledge that I knew I would die. And that's not a dramatic statement. Mm. I think I knew that I would not survive. I knew I would lose my children. I knew um, I would lose my career. And, I, and again, I had pieced together a weird work thing at the time. It wasn't really a career at that time. But I knew mm-hmm. everything was fixing to go. It was almost like there was this weird window where I knew that I was either going to get sober or not. And so I could either do it and and go all the way in and sit all the way down and buckle up um, mm. and be willing to look at all those character defects that I got that I didn't want to look at um, that drove me out. So when you got sober in 2015, after all that you had been through in the preceding years, what was your feeling when you walked into the rooms on a regular basis at 15 years? Um, when I went in, I don't know why I knew it was different. I knew, I knew it was different. And there was a relief. There was a, um, I cried a lot. Oh my God. You know, I'm a crier. And, um, today I know I cry for, Mm -hmm. I cry for joy. I cry for real feelings. And I knew at the time it was just shame and despair. And I did, I did a lot of yets in that window of time. I went out, all the yets happened. And so there was a lot of shame Mm. and, um, but there was something that happened. I don't know. Maybe it was the own like true willingness. Maybe it was a different kind of surrender. I don't know. I will tell you, I believe with everything I am, it was a miracle, but nothing Mm. that was a bright light miracle, nothing that like had sparkles. It was like this crazy piece underneath all of it. Like the waves were rough up up top, but underneath there was this incredible piece. Um, If I could just keep doing the next thing to the next day, it would be okay. Mm. Yeah, I get that. Sounds to me like spiritual humility. Sounds like you got to a point where spiritually, you know, you were able to exhale finally. I think that's it. So you went back to your original sponsor? I did. And she wouldn't sponsor me. She wouldn't? (laughs) Not initially. (laughs) She, uh, well, and it's because she had sponsored me for years, right? And I quit doing the suggestions. Uh Uh-huh. And she sponsored me when I tried to come back in and I got drunk again. And and I say drunk again. I don't, I've never really strung together anything in that window of time I tried to come in for a bit. And um, so I, she met me at the meeting. And um, so I'm like crying. And will you be my sponsor? And she said, no. And she said, I'll help you find a sponsor. Mm. I will answer the phone every day you call. Mm-hmm. But you've got to do something different this time. And she said, it's unfair if I said I would. And... Um, so I worked with this other lady and it's crazy how God works. I worked with this lady and she was everything my sponsor mm-hmm. is not. She, and, uh, she did it wrong, the whole thing wrong. And so I would call. Oh, you mean compared to your first sponsor? She compared to the way I thought she should do it. So. <laughs> oh, okay. But yes, no, I, but I called and I said, she's making me read the whole book. And, you know, and my, the gal who is my sponsor now. And she said, well, just keep doing what's suggested and, you know, just keep doing. 
what it was, was I had to get through and I got through and I begged her to get my, to do, uh-huh. write my fourth and do my fifth with her. And she made me wait. And I knew I had to get it done. I knew the relief that was going to come from that. Had you done it previously when you were in the program? Yes. You did your fourth step? Yes, I did. How did that compare to the fourth step that you did in 2015 when you came back? Oh, it was a lot more insightful, kind of with some family of origin pieces I had held on to. Mm-hmm. And I was more willing to look at my part on every single level, every single level. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I think that's God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself because I knew I had to get it out. And I knew I had to say it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and then once the the joke with my sponsor and I now is, um, then she heard my fifth step and left town. She moved back to Colorado. So. <laughs> <laughs> now that's not to get away from no you, idea. was it? <laughs> no, she was, she was from Colorado and they had a family ranch and she was here for a window of time. And um, yeah, so, I mean, it was, and then it was like, it was at this place and I called my sponsor who I talked to every day, but I went through the steps with this yeah. different woman initially and I needed to do that. And then I said, Hey, you know, I've done this, I'm done that. And, and I'm making my, I did my six and seven and she, I said, will you be my sponsor again? And she said, yeah. And so. Sounds like she was your accountability sponsor the whole time though, that you were calling her and still reaching out to her, even with regard to how the new sponsor was working with you. What happened to the second sp- the the other sponsor? Did did she remain a sponsor? Is she still in your life? She's not. And it's interesting because it was a very detached relationship. It was a very business relationship. She was mm-hmm. uh, she was an attorney. And um, I would call and we had different faith backgrounds and um, and God was a big thing for me. I felt like he had let me down Mm. and I really had to do a lot of work with that. And uh, she was Catholic and she would tell me she was sorry I wasn't Catholic so I could suffer better. She really would tell me that. (laughs) (laughs) I'd call my sponsor now like this is crazy. (laughs) And then uh, and then she called me and her sponsor then was a man. And I said, that's not right. That's not how we do it. And and then her sponsor was an Al-Anon, not an alcoholic and all these. But but what God was showing me, it had nothing to do with that. It had nothing to do with that. Had everything. It had everything to do with my willingness. So your willingness translated into the ability to work a pretty good program at that point, huh? Yes. Yeah. Had you done eighth and ninth step work the first time around? I did. Actually, I, I um, and I did one of the gifts of that. My dad, who was an active alcoholic until he died, um, we had had some the best relationship we could and he had something had happened. Um, I called him and I said, um, I had already made amends and loved him. I'd learned to love him right where he was. And this was the yeah. first time I was sober. And I called him and, and something had occurred. And I said, hey, I can't talk to you anymore until you're sober. And I said, it's the kids heard this and this was so bad and it's not you. I know it's the disease and I love you so much. But right. if you ever get sober, please call me. And he told me how proud he was of me. And how much he loved me and how much he hoped he could call me one day and be sober. And he died a few weeks later. Mm. But that was the gift of being able to make amends and and have nothing to do with him, but love him where he was. And the Mm. ability to know that the last time I spoke to my dad because of Alcoholics Anonymous was Mm -hmm. a loving, loving kind daughter-father relationship as best it could be, yeah, as best yeah. it could be. What a gift. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's informing to anybody who may have slipped or gone out to completely discount anything they got the first time they were in the program because mm-hmm. there you are, the slip is yet to come, or the crash right. in your case mm-hmm. is yet to come, but yet you were able to do eighth and ninth step work during that time such that it had that healing for you. That's... Mm-hmm. That's extraordinary. So did you did you find some residual things that you had to do with regard to the eighth and ninth step when you were finally back in the program? Oh yes, I did. So plenty of plenty of material to work with at that point. I I did. <laughs> <laughs> How did all that work out? 
You know, I think the other thing I had learned when I came back in was I had saw, I had seen this God do so many good things for me, even in the midst Mm -hmm. of this horrible, wicked relapse that I saw the beauty that would come from making the amends, looking at it with no expectations. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also learned that some amends, I did the best I could. I had a lot of guidance. I didn't do a lot of them without talking over and sorting through what were my motives was um, what was best for that person. A -hmm. lot of prayer, a lot of, for me, a lot of journaling. I journal a lot to look at that process now. And it took time because Mm -hmm. not everything, it couldn't, not everything was quick. During that process, did you find any people from the program from your first period of sobriety that you needed to make amends to? Yes. Yeah. And and really, mostly it was my first sponsor. And I don't remember because, again, I was yeah. a, this wicked blackout drinker. So I had a sharp tongue as just mean as a wet hen and mm-hmm. um, angry. I was angry, so angry at the world. And I had said some horrible things. There, and probably in my soul, in my heart, there, they that's what was the horrible piece. And, uh-huh. um, but I did. I made amends to her. And it was one of the... Um, I, you know, the program has given me people in my life and because I've known her and her husband, they're both in the program. So for greater, what, 17 years, I guess Uh they're my family, you know, they know my stuff, they know my story and I love them as much as I love any of my family. And so that amends was especially, um, needed and hard, but very sweet. Sounds like it was really healing too. Mm-hmm. especially if she's back in your life now on a regular basis. Yes, <laughs> yes. That is so, so cool. And it sounds to me like that was pretty instructive to you on how to sponsor other women. Did you find that you were able to implement a lot of what you had learned from them in the sponsorship of women yourself? Yes, I am so fortunate. Um, for me, the way my sponsor sponsors is from the big book. I mean, it's just absolute singleness of purpose. I see. And it's not anything of what she thinks. It might be, did you pray a lot of, did you pray about it? Did you read, did you read this chapter? That's been so instrumental because, and I love it. It's in, we, and it just struck me again the other day and working with others mm-hmm. that walking side by side. Cause if I walk side mm-hmm. by side with somebody else, I learn as much about me as I do them. Hmm. So you've got women that you sponsor, women in your life. What's the last six years been like for you overall? Tell, tell me about some of the gifts that have happened as a result of you staying sober. So it's been pretty humbling to be a woman in her 50s and learn how to be in a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and um, to get to be fully, you know, first I'll say to get to be fully present in all my kids' lives. And um, they're all different. And um, mm-hmm. I am so fortunate and this is kind of the other cool piece, the way I see God work. I um, had shared that there was a child that was a stillbirth. And so mm. it was real painful. And yeah. um, one of the things that was told was um, that that child carried my sins and that's why it died. So now I, here I am, I have these five kids and my, my heart had this little hole and um, I am in this relationship and this gentleman has a daughter and I, I'm never proclaimed to be her mother, but mm. I get to love her the way a mother loves a child. And it's mm. a very special relationship. And I see how God heals through that and how my God is sovereign because now um, it just is pretty cool how that works. But then to, to learn to be in a relationship has been pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. And um because if you're in the middle of a disease, it's easy to be in a relationship and blame somebody else. Yeah. And if you're healthy in a relationship, dead gum, I have to look at myself a lot. <laughs> that takes a lot more work. How do your two programs balance out? I think the, the gift is um, we each have our own program. Mm-hmm. I think the other gift is that we, and I loved it, um, Early on, we did the, a workbook, learning how to take the traditions and use it in our relationship. That has been one of the most beautiful things to get to do. And mm. to be in a relationship and learn, um, and I, I use this with women I work with, but it, for me, it's been so important. It's that seventh tradition of fully self-supporting. Mm-hmm. And I, I initially used to think that was financial. And it's, that's been very important to me. 
um, for several reasons. But then I realized it was about emotional and spiritual and being able to emotionally and spiritually meet my own needs so that when I can come to somebody, I'm full. And so I have stuff to give. And I think there was like this day it dawned on me. I know people get that a lot sooner than I did. And I was like, oh my gosh, how cool is that? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. You know, your story has been so fascinating to listen to. And the way that you found your spirituality, I think, is especially important for people to hear about and to know that they can go through what you went through and get through it. I mean, I've, I've known people, one of the, one of the men I, I sponsor uh, had a stillbirth and, uh, in the midst of his program, and he was able to be buoyed up and supported by other men in the program such that he was able to get through that time that was very, very difficult. He still had to grieve and everything else, but he was able to get through it. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like the experience that you gained through that, plus everything that's come to you since you've been in AA has been pretty, pretty extraordinary. Now, let me ask you something. With what you know now, with what you have gained during the six years and some change that you've been sober this time and the time before, if you could gather all that knowledge together and take it back to a younger version of yourself at some point in your life where it would have made the biggest difference, when would that have been? And who would, what would you say to that, that Jackie of, of yesteryear? Oh, you know, I think what I know today is I would have to tell her to trust and it'll be okay. Mm. Because where I sit today, Howard, is such a sweet space. And I see God every day, and I've learned that if I will just trust when I don't like what's going on, I will see down the road it's okay, that I would hate to change any of it, because if I did, would I change where I sit today? Mm. But I think what I would tell her is that it will be okay, and what I would tell her is that there is a God that is remarkable and bigger than she knows. And to just keep seeking him, that she will find him. Mm. And for me, I get to go to church today because that's my extra. But where I hear God is when I hear another woman in the program. Mm -hmm. And when I hear God is when we say an opening or closing prayer or statement as a group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, you know, I will tell you, I'm in this amazing relationship and I, I want more. I wish that could have been longer. But if I changed anything, I, I wouldn't take away where I am today. Hmm. Hmm. That's a beautiful sentiment and, and one that I've seen people get to that sentiment before, but it's only after they've done some really hard work in the program. And if there was ever a demonstration of hard work paying off, I think your story today and the woman you are today is is a great demonstration of that. And because I've had the opportunity to be close with your significant other over the the amount of time that you guys have been together, I know just from him, not necessarily the things he said about you or the relationship, but just his demeanor and his happiness in life and knowing that your presence in his life absolutely is a sign that, that God is working in both your lives simultaneously in a way that brought you together. I just think that's inspiring and pretty phenomenal when you when you stop and think about it. Um, so as I say, this has been a really beautiful time for you and I to get together and uh, share with each other. Is there anything else that you'd, you'd like to throw into this conversation that you feel is important for someone, anyone who's listening to it, wherever they are in whatever situation they're in? You know, one of my favorite things I cling to every day is that is uh, rule 62, you know, that don't take yourself seriously. (laughs) Don't take yourself seriously. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And I think if I do that, then I can give space and and way for laughter. And that's where I see God and I hear him. And um, yeah, what I think is good for me, it probably isn't. And then what works out to be the best is like the lane yap for my life. So. Yeah, isn't that something how we, we, we don't know until we've actually gotten there that we've arrived, yes. right? Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're, we think we're still on the road and we're standing at the destination the whole time. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty astonishing when you stop and think about yes. it. Well, Jackie, I want to thank you so much for doing this today. It's just been a, the time has slipped right on by and uh, it's just been wonderful 
speaking with you and getting to know you in a way that, I mean, we've met and we've, we've had a chance to chat, chit chat a little bit over the years, but just being able to sit down with you and, and have an intimate discussion. And I want to honor you and thank you for being open and trusting me with your story. I wish you well in your program. I love you and I honor your relationship with my good friend and hope that I have a chance to to see you soon. So again, many thanks. And thank you, Howard. And thank you for what you're doing and the gift of, of putting this together for those of us and mm-hmm. to glean from. I've enjoyed, um, I have an hour drive to and from work, so I get to enjoy the podcast. Do you? I do, yeah. Uh, oh, that's so. great. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm putting one out a week. Every Wednesday I'm releasing one. And uh, I've been alternating man, woman, man, woman for the longest time now. And it's it's just been incredibly gratifying to me to know that there are people who I will never, ever meet who will be impacted yeah. by the things that you mm-hmm. say and the things that my other guests have said. So it's really a, I don't know, it's just some service work that's really tangible for me. So I appreciate your support and uh, tell as many people as you know about it. I will. I will. I love you, Howard. <laughs> Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Jackie B., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please leave a multi-star rating and review for the show on your podcast app? That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.